Welcome to The Hard Truth with internationally recognized expert and forensic criminologist, Dr. Brent Turby, and his co-host, Melanie Inglace, a forensic investigator. They discuss, dissect, and explain the often complicated world of law enforcement investigations, their limitations, and the overall state of forensic science and the reality of intersectionality within the justice system. So sit back and enjoy this master-level discussion on The Hard Truth. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Brent Turvey. I'm here again this week with my forensic investigator, Melanie Inglis from Canada. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about sex trafficking. And one of the one of the messages we want to talk about this week is the problem that it is so endemic. It is so much a part of the fabric of society, of most societies, that either it's overt and everyone understands that it's a way of commerce or it's hidden in plain sight in such a way that nobody really is comfortable acknowledging it, let alone talking about it. This leads to all manner of problems, including the misidentification, sort of essentially law enforcement apathy, uh, community ap apathy, and the misidentification or the missed opportunity to identify other additional offenders and people involved in the trafficking. And that sounds like a big word, like it, like we're involved in some kind of cartel. That's not what it is. So, um, First, before we get started, I think it's really important to talk to, to make a couple to do a, uh, to explain a couple of things. Let me go entire screen. Let's go to window. Here we go. This right here. This is a great. Well, I love these little infographics, especially when they're accurate. Uh, the sex trafficking occurs when someone is, uses force, fraud, or coercion to cause a commercial sex act with an adult, or causes a minor to commit any commercial sex act. So the issue is you're human trafficking with sexual with a, with the additional element of sexual exploitation and <clears throat> this can occur in a lot of contexts and we'll talk about some of those but the other thing is who's involved in this obviously you have the person being trafficked the victim this incurs uh, this includes men and women uh, it includes um, uh, boys and girls it is not limited to to one particular group all manner of groups can be trafficked but there, there has to be somebody trafficking that person. They're the one who exploits the victim, and they're the ones who control the money. The issue is about control of their money. This is not prostitution per se, and it is not um, the same. Not all sex work is equal. The problem with our society is we treat, we use the term sex work to describe a lot of things from people working in dance clubs uh, with uh, partial nudity to full nudity, to people engaging in sex acts for money, to people working in the pornography industry, to people uh, in all different contexts who are selling aspects of their, of their sexual activity. Now this can be done consensually and it can be done non-consensually when it's not consensual and it, or when it involves someone else controlling the person and their money, they don't control their own business. They don't control their own money. They don't control their, their, uh, their, their paperwork. They don't control anything. That's when they're being trafficked. And that happens more often than you think. Uh, but the other thing is there's this, Related public health issue. I want to just make a list of the. We have these nice little list of things. It's uh, trafficking involves often drug abuse, alcohol abuse, the domestic violence aspect, uh, delinquency, teenage pregnancy, STDs, abortion. All these health issues are related, and it's interesting because all of these health issues, all of them, are stigmatized in one way or another, and we do a very good job of that. And that brings me to Melanie. I want to I'm going to talk about my experiences with sex trafficking cases, but I like Melanie to go first. 
Melanie, you've had a couple of run-ins or a couple of contexts where sex trafficking has been an issue mm -hmm. for your other agency that you work with and locally in your own uh, in your own community. Can you tell us about both of those, please? That'd be great. Sure. In the context of the other organization, which is Please Bring Me Home, and we work cold cases out of Canada, um, we generally dependent on the age of the person that we're usually female in my case, but the age of the person that we are looking for, we generally start to think about sex trafficking as an option and we go down that kind of investigative journey. There are a couple of cases where we did suspect that and the last, she had been seen a couple of times and she had been branded as what they call, they get a little tattoo right after yep. they've been taken in. And um, so we started going down that avenue and we actually went to the source. So there is um, a, a place that people go looking uh, called Lilo's List, I'm pretty sure, and it's online and you can go and you can look for uh, prostitutes on this website. And we went to a specific the worker section. They do. Yes, they have a specific section. So we also found there's a lot of code words um, as we started investigating a lot to find out who uh, there's code words for underage girls. Um, that if that's what someone's specifically looking for. So we actually went to the source that wrote a couple of letters back and forth. The executive director of the organization did. And to our surprise, the, um, they, they wanted to join forces with us. So what they actually did was they wanted to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. So they actually gave a donation to the organization to help us with our investigation while also putting a banner up of the, the two girls specifically that we were looking for and put their identification on there, um, all, of, all of these sorts of things so we can try to find, we were looking for tips or get any information right. from anyone who would have maybe been with them at some point and could contact us and say, well, I was with her at this point. So we were just trying to get a timeline basically. So they, they were on board and they wanted to, like I said, they wanted to put the information out there because they're aware that it exists, but it, it is on such a massive scale where do you even begin? So that's where our organization and and they started. So they they joined forces with us. Like I said, it did generate some tips, which was very helpful. But this was, um, like I said, it was to our surprise because normally we get a, but we, we did get a lot of pushback. I will say that from the public. They were not impressed with um, the donation and talking about it publicly, kind of joining up with, with that sort of business. Um, yeah. But it's, it was for the benefit of these girls to try to find them. And so why do you think that was in your mind? Why do you think you got community pushback? Can you give me just a sense of what, it, of what their pushback was? I found, well, from what I read, yeah. um, it was a lot of, it was a lot of women pushing back um, and yeah. calling us names and saying all sorts of things and calling it like the, dirty money or the devil's money and things like that. And I think it comes from a place of fear and insecurity and maybe personal experience. Maybe they, maybe a relationship broke down because of sex workers were involved and they found out. I'm not exactly sure. We didn't get into details, but there's yeah. a lot of fear and insecurity when it comes to this culture or this way of living. And um, we, you know, we were empathetic to it and we did respond. But at the same time, like I said, this was about finding missing girls that ended up being trafficked underage into this type of industry. And this is a, this is the problem. Uh, and I, I think this is a great segue into the other parts of this. The, like I was, like I was saying at the, at the top of the episode <clears throat> in the intro, 
This sex trafficking is endemic in the United States and in Canada to an extent, and obviously in Latin America as well, where we do a lot of work. And what that means is it's part of the culture. It's part of the culture, like like the church, like the like the law, like the police, all these organizations, and they, they actually are. There's a connection there. This is not something that people are unaware of, at all. It's and it also they uh, women know that they have when they are married to or dating a man who uses sex workers. It is not hidden to them. They are not stupid. And so they understand that this is a big problem. And instead of holding the men accountable, what do the women do? Just like with everything else, they come to the female as though the female is the problem. Right. Let's say you have a jealous female. I mean, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. I know we've had this conversation where you have a jealous female and their, uh, their boyfriend or husband starts talking to a, an attractive female and immediately they attack the female. Immediately, that's the enemy, and they find a way to malign them or marginalize them or even call them out publicly instead of talking to their boyfriend or husband, right? It's a very common – they want to deny they, the problem is with the man. They want to, they want to think right. the problem is with the women. They always go – or for the most part, they go after the female, and the husband or boyfriend or whatever just goes about his business and continues the cycle, and yet they just keep going after the female like he's not the problem. Right. All right, so let's go stop the screen share. I'm going to do the other one. Uh, I want to share the window, which is this right here. Okay, so we have these. There is uh, one of the one of the um, one of the biggest money making events for sex trafficking is always the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is one of the greatest sex trafficking draws in the United sex trafficking draws in the United States. Law enforcement knows this, and they often set up task forces at the site of the Super Bowl, whatever city it's in, and they know it's big business. And sports and sex trafficking go hand in hand. Whether it's uh, getting box seats at the event and having the cheerleaders come up and perform, and by the way, the cheerleaders fit the definition of human trafficking. Most of them are not paid; their labor is being completely exploited. They, they control what events they can go to, what they can wear, how much they weigh, how they look, how they present themselves, where they make their money is inside events. All right. They're not they don't make money from the organization. However, if you are a, 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 a season ticket holder and a box seat holder and you and you are a person of wealth and power and influence, well, uh, you're going to be expecting that they're going to send the cheerleaders to the box and there will be an expectation of sexual services whether it's, you know, the half hooker economy or a full service, you know what I mean? There, that's the expectation. And this is the same in modeling. It's the same in all kinds of careers that involve young, attractive females. This is not something new. This is known by everyone. And, but just like the military, just like in law enforcement, the wives of these guys pretend it's not true and they get angry at anyone who talks about it. The problem I would suggest, Ophelia, is with you. That is what I would suggest. <clears throat> So the men need to be held accountable, all right? Not the victims. That's the first thing. So Super Bowl is a big draw. It ensnares. There, there's the task forces routinely ensnare politicians. Uh, one year, it was a news analyst. Another year, it was a couple of sports figures. I mean, everybody is doing this. In fact, I would say that is one of the bigger draws for it. It's like um, in, uh, in my hometown of Alaska, we had a... Um, a sex trafficking situation going on. But let me tell you the context. Sitka is a very small community with a bunch of little small islands around it. And they have 
fishing lodges. Very wealthy people come up to $5,000 to $10,000 a pop for a few days, and they come up in groups, and they expect to be taken care of. And what I would watch is the beautiful young ladies arriving at the beginning of the season and then leaving halfway through or at the end very upset and dismayed, but having worked as a hostess for a period of time. And you talk to them and they'll tell you, yeah, there's an expectation that you're going to perform sexual favors for these men who come up on these fishing junkets. That's the expectation. And, they, and that's how you increase your tips. So that's that, by the way, is that's not legal. Uh, whether or not it's trafficking, it's a question, especially if the girl doesn't know and if they don't control their money. There's some legalities there, but that's there. It's baked into American culture that if you have money and privilege that other people, minorities and, and other vulnerable populations are simply there for you to exploit there was, but let me let me give you the the, the more the more um, pronounced one that sort of tips the hand of what law enforcement's involvement is here. There was a big case that happened while I was working with the police department. I came in, I was doing two weeks on and two weeks off working on this rape homicide for them, and I came in and they had just done a raid on a camp. Uh, one of my daughter's best friends at the time was actually involved in this. Um, was a uh, won't say her name, but I'll just say this. It was an island campment run by this two two people, Dick and Cynthia Skye. And his this guy's name was Dick Blue Skye. He was actually taller than me. Cynthia was shorter. And in the in two thousand one, they got busted because for the last you know six seven years they've been having young girls go out to their island for a religious experience for the with the religious community. And what they had was actually a, a cabin separate from the living cabin where they would have rooms, and each room had a theme some sexual theme to it associated with, with, with a childlike innocence, like a room for little Bo Peep and a room for the student and a room for whatever. These were the sexual right. themes. And they, we know this because they had a manual that there was handwritten with Polaroid photographs of each room and the theme. And that manual didn't just explain descriptions of rooms. The next was the description of the girls. There was something like eight girls in this book. One of them being the best friend of my daughter at the time. And these girls ranged from 18, or excuse me, from eight years old to like 13. All right. And each girl had themes that they would be involved in, the price for sexual services and the different types of uh, toys that they could use and the breakdown of the, all the costs. Why this mattered is because they served this warrant and got all these sex toys and videotapes. So either people would go out to the aisle and have sex with these girls or Mr. Sky would have sex with these girls and film the video and send the video off to uh, to consumers. So I get there and they're like, oh, we just did the, the warrant and we arrested the skies and it's going to be so great. And I'm like, OK, well, let's do the background. Uh, this guy living in Sitka had been pulled over by the police five times. When you pull over somebody, you're supposed to do a want and warrant check. Well, he was on the run from warrants in Montana for sexual molestation and incest. Hmm. All right. So this was not some new thing to this guy. And the police could have identified him really fast if they'd done what they do with every other person when they pull them over is what's called a triple I search to look for wants and warrants. They didn't do that with Dick Blue Sky. Now, back in the day, they, they, what we had were handwritten cards, all right, on the back of the, uh, you, have, you have an actual physical mugshot stapled to a physical three by five card. And that's what they were using. When we got there, they were <laughs> updating. So the, um, the evidence custodian, Lynn Blankenship, moron uh, and corrupt as hell threw away the entire box of MO cards because she didn't want us going through it for our work. 
Well, we grabbed them all and we found Dick Blue Sky's MO card. He had been pulled over and never had a triple I search been done. Or if it had been done, they hadn't done anything with it. The reason why is because all the people in the religious community loved this guy. And they loved his wife because he talked about Jesus and he talked about mm-hmm. forgiveness and he talked about the children and all the great things that you do to groom a parent to get access sexually to their kid. And the kids, they weren't saying anything, but they were all messed up. So <clears throat> what I said was, well, we need to do send off all these sex toys to the lab to get tested for DNA to see which kids have been, you know, we have proof of, of sexual contact. Like, no, we can't do that. That costs money. I'm like, uh, yeah, we can. No, 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 we, we don't want to do that. The reason they didn't want to do it is the same reason they didn't want to investigate who the tapes were being sent to. And they didn't want to investigate who was visiting the island is because too many local wealthy people were implicated. So they refused to do an investigation at all because they felt it might implicate good people in the community. Right. Respond to that for me a little bit, because I, I, I know what you, I can see you're boiling. <laughs> I was just when you were bringing up law enforcement, um, what I was explaining to you before with the please bring me home. Uh, situation is law enforcement. We had a few officers that were really upset with us joining forces with um, the, the the organizers, I guess, of, of this list because they were willing to go through information um, such as that they were worried we were going to get a list of people that were using the women's <laughs> services and it was the officers that yeah. were really upset by this now why would and you do that <laughs> because their names are on it because their names and the names of their friends are on it or people exactly. that arrested and let go are on it so there's a lot That's of right. reasons why they don't there but- were so many levels to that and they were really hesitant and we, and we said well why don't you want to this is this is an avenue we have an in to these people that might be able to give us some tips why about missing girls and, names, they, my friends? and they why said no we don't, we don't want any part in that. And they got quite upset about it. Yeah. Now, the reason why is because there is a relationship between law enforcement and sex trafficking that goes back a long time. The first thing is that law enforcement is, knows exactly who's being trafficked and where. They know the hot spots. They know the hotels that are involved. They know the people that are involved. They know the networks that are involved. Mm-hmm. They know. In fact, law enforcement will do things to push sex trafficking into a specific to specific zones away from, again, the good people right so they'll push it into impoverished zones because why because the military uses sex traffic victims all the time in fact that's a sales point for the military you want to have sex with women in different nations and different cities join the military you'll have a girl in every port a girl in every city that's that's the idea that's sold to them by the actual recruiters and many of the people who use the services <laughs> of prostitutions especially in places like georgia or other places in the south are going to be people in the military and a lot of those go into law enforcement and they get they got they get the habit, they get the taste for it, the desire for it, so they keep doing it. The other thing is law enforcement is often involved in the protection or transportation of these girls because they are they are getting in exchange sexual services. The other thing that happens insidiously is that law enforcement will bust a prostitute or somebody on the street and they will just start uh, using their sexual services for free under threat of being put in prison. Right. They love that. This is an actual perk for law enforcement of, 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 of a certain kind. Not all law enforcement, but many. Now, let me let me uh, let me just suggest to you, if people, if people have a problem with that, they should uh, let's see. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Police officers, what they like to do is uh, sex with prostitutes. 
What they like to do is fight for the right constantly to have sex with prostitutes. Police officers want the right. They what they what they normally a uh, the the real the valid response for someone for an officer on duty having sex with a prostitute is they should be terminated like immediately and then pro and then prosecuted. Right. In many jurisdictions, they fight for the right, especially like Hawaii, Arizona. Place, let's just put it again. Places in the South, very religious, conservative areas, they fight. The officers fight for the right for their undercoffer officers to be able to have sex with prostitutes in order to make the bust. Now, here's the funny thing. The wives all know this. The girlfriends all know this. They don't care. They just want those overtime checks. So as long as the overtime checks keep rolling in, they could care less what their incredibly brave, heroic officers are doing while they're exploiting prostitutes. Um, let me see. There's a... Yeah, there's it, basically this is a very uh, this is a very hot button issue, but I, I've seen it crop up many, many different times in many different contexts. But essentially, law enforcement officer, what will happen is a law enforcement officer will get busted for having sex with a prostitute. Then the union will get involved and basically say, no, 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 no. They were on an undercover operation and it's OK to do it then. And the chain of command's like, no, it's not. And they're like, well, we need to fight to change the law. And often they'll do it. There's a lot of there's states where this is legal. All right. So this is part of law enforcement culture. And then it becomes the law enforcement gets involved in actually the protection and the transportation. The biggest, most recent scandal, of course, that I was just uh, showing is this in Virginia, where you have um, multiple police officers uh, are uh, charged with actually not only using the services of, of uh, traffic victims, but also protecting them and moving them around. But what they were doing wasn't just like it was accident, like they slipped and fell into this circumstance. No, they sought them out, harassed and intimidated them like they were. I mean, again, act, law enforcement acting as a criminal cartel. There was a big scandal that I remember at NYPD where they busted a uh, brothel. The, the vice unit busted a brothel. And instead of arresting everybody, the vice unit took it over and they ran it for like five years. The vice unit of the NYPD, all of those officers, something like 50 officers had to be fired and prosecuted. It was back in early 2000s. I remember that. But but it's it's a model that I've seen repeated over and over again. So law enforcement knows where the vulnerable people are. They know where the vulnerable, where the hotspots are. They know who the customers are. And they're using that information to do their job better or to exploit those victims. That's why it doesn't go away. Because this is not a problem. This is a problem that can be easily solved or dealt with. So you keep people on the right, you keep, uh, you know, women on the right screaming about it like it's really, really bad that, uh, that, that uh, prostitutes even exist and let's not talk about it while their men are using the services of prostitutes under color of authority, whether it's military law enforcement or their position in the religious community or as a wealthy business owner. So they know it and they abuse mm -hmm. it. One of and the, that's not, yeah, I was ahead. just going to say, you said about the undercover cops, let's yeah. not uh, forget about the officers in uniform that use those ladies services when they are informants as well and keeping them, fearful of what they may do if they don't perform those sexual acts. Yeah. A lot of the time and, on and, duty. And this is a, it's really important to understand that um, law enforcement has a special privilege, special sort of space in society where they can, where they have access to victims, to vulnerable groups, where they have the power to detain, arrest, uh, and even kill these people without any, with impunity. And in, in Latin America, they just kill them if they don't comply in, uh, in the United States, I'm not sure it's quite that bad yet, but it's certainly not good. Uh, even doing anything at all is bad. But, but the point is, law enforcement occupy this special place. 
And this is, again, part of the problem that I have with, with law enforcement culture. I've never seen a culture that's so continuously and, and uh, vocally demanded being screamed at that they are heroes over and over again as though their tiny, fragile little egos can't handle any other thought. But the only people who need that kind of stuff are people who are doing dirt. Good people don't need to be told they're doing good. They know they're doing good. People who are doing dirt, they need to be told they're heroes constantly. They, and they get angry when anyone suggests they're not. The, and one of the things that's interesting about that is we see that from the wives of law enforcement. So wives do not like it when you do not supplicate to their, uh, to their officer, um, you know, spouses, husbands, girlfriend, whatever, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. But let's talk about another, another big case recently. Uh, another one is, okay, we have that one. Um, Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew is finally going to get his comeuppance for um, his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein. Now, why does this matter? It matters because he was facilitating and paying for uh, women or young girls who were being provided to him by Epstein. That's why they hung out. That's why Trump hung out with him. That's why, that's why Andrew, Prince Andrew hung out with him. And people are thinking, oh, it's happening because the queen has removed his titles and removed this, removed that. That's so good. Now he's now he doesn't have protection. No, now he doesn't have assets. The reason the queen did that is not because the queen is a good person. I want to just make this very clear. The queen of England over the years, I have come to regard as one of the shittiest people on the planet. One of the easily most racist, shitty people on the planet, constantly backing Netflix series and movies and all that kind of stuff to try to promote this idea that they are trying to be a force of good against a tide, a tide of evil in the world. No, a shitty person doing shitty things. And one of the shitty things she did was basically cut him off from his money so that the royal to the crown couldn't be sued. This isn't about protecting Andrew. It's about protecting the assets of the crown. If he's not connected to the crown, then you can't depose members of the royal family. I feel That's some it. interesting feedback coming after that. You do? Good. Bring it on, right? Good. Bring it on, right? I mean, if you don't like, I mean, here's the thing. One of the things I know, if you're like, if you're a Trump supporter, for example, I know that you have an aspiration to either date a porn star, have sex with prostitutes, or you're having sex with prostitutes, or your boyfriend, husband is doing it. And you're probably pretending to be very religious. That's what I know. So, and it's a, it's a constant. It's not some new thing. And that's going to be a constant thing. Oh, here we go. Well, that's it. Yeah, see, it's already starting. Nice. But Andrew, <laughs> Andrew is a member of the royal family, and he's had their protection for a very long time because wealthy people like other wealthy people. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think we actually even know what was going on in his little sex island that he had going on, but that was trafficking. Young girls being brought there under um, completely false pretenses and then mm -hmm. being forced to engage in sex acts. Can we also just touch on, I think that when I'm speaking about this in, you know, general conversation, because that tends yeah. to come up a lot. But when yeah. I do mention the ages, when we say girls working in this industry or being forced to work in this industry, when they are recruited, we are talking about, I've seen eight-year-olds up until 12, 13. And I've also, there was, there was a big thing that happened up near a place where near where I'm from and it's a nuclear plant and they there was a lot going on there there was sex trafficking young girls being used um I don't know what where it was happening I know the hotels around where these workers would come in to work at this plant 
and they would utilize these services. These were men in their 50s-ish, yep. 50s and 60s, and the girls were under 13 years of age, and they would use them when they would go up for work for a week, and they would call these girls in, and they would have to be under 15, 13, 11 was yeah. preferable, and nobody is understanding that. When we're talking about this, they're thinking about women in, you know, that have chosen to be in this in no, this line no, of work. And, no, these are exactly. these are children, and no. the con well, there's so many concerning aspects, but no. the age of like we were calling it aging out of this industry, specifically for this particular group of men, like was 16. 15. They yes. didn't want anything over 15 because they were too old. Yeah, and well, the reason why is because they could think and talk. Right. And they can't. A man like that is not able to be with someone who is their intellectual equal or who pushes back. They want someone now, who does what they're told. Let me ask you this. Yeah. You mentioned the um, the different rooms that were. Um, they had themes of childlike things, right? Dick Blue Sky, that's right. Right. So this is one thing I've I've questioned uh, before, just, you know, when I'm looking through some of our texts and we're dealing with this situation, is the draw for, like you said, the schoolgirl. Um, this, this fantasy that you find in a lot of porn or magazines and things like that, where, you know, like the pigtails or the braids and the schoolgirl outfit, it is... It's so concerning to me, I guess, because that is a direct reflection of somebody that's in elementary school, right? This is you, You're carrying on this sort of fantasy of a child and you want a, a grown woman to dress like it or act like it because that makes it right. This has baffled my mind for a while. Right. Is, this, is this just something that's been going on forever? Right. This so let's, child? Let, let's, be, let's be very clear. You have to separate out consensual sexual activity and even role play from criminal activity involving someone who's actually a child and being exploited. I'm going to say this very loud and very clear. I am not the sex police. I don't believe you go into people's brains and tell them how they, what they can fantasize about, what they can fetishize and what they can eroticize. Two consenting adults in a room, do whatever you want. It's not my, it's right. not my business. I don't, not only do I not know, I don't want to know because it's not my business because People have different uh, sexual associations and needs and likes and distastes. And if two people come together and they find things pleasurable amongst each other to do, this is not the place of the state or of Brent Turvey to tell them what is moral and right and just. However, if you're actually actively involved in the exploitation of a child or a minor, or you're, you're, um, you cannot become aroused other than by actual force. See, here, here's the thing. An adult female, an adult male can both give consent and they part of giving right. it means they can give away their consent temporarily part. And that's part of an, of that. There's a, right. there are people who are aroused by that, or they can take on a particular role because they like the way it looks not, they don't want the actual, they don't want an actual child. They want an adult female or an adult male pretending to be like a child. But that's and what that's, I mean. Right. Psychologically, game. where yeah. does that generate from? That's what I'm asking because that does all kinds of like places. go over into adult, yeah, kind of, it's, it's all kinds of, it goes over all kinds of places, but there's a line between um, consensual sex and non-consensual sex where even in the context of a fantasy where, oh, it's, we're going to do some uh, non-consensual fantasy, still a fantasy, still can be stopped still at any moment, right? right. Yeah. No yeah. Real, there's no real danger. Nobody's in any real danger there. Adults mm -hmm. can make it stop. 
And that's the difference. If you need, if you require a context where you can only be aroused by someone who is truly incapable of saying no, of truly incapable of giving consent, of truly incapable of, uh, or truly requiring that arousal from the, from that non-consensual context, that is very different. So the line is consent. Mm -hmm. Line is very clear. It's about consent. It's, it's not, it's not even that complicated. The problem is when people who are doing shitty, terrible, awful, exploitative things make the argument, they grab onto the people who have, who are adults doing consensual stuff, acting like that's part of their group. And the people in that group who are doing that are afraid that they're going to lose their rights. So they kind of don't say anything. Right. And the other problem is we don't have enough mature adults of sexual who are sexually informed to even have these conversations. Yeah. I would ask, I would ask any of the viewers to ask themselves this. When was the last time you have an adult, you had an adult conversation about sex and consent and with whom? Not just about, oh, I went out last night and did X. I mean, where you sat down and you talked about consent, where you said, you know, I was with this person and I was and I had a question and I had a doubt or I'm thinking about being with this person and I have a question or a doubt. That, an adult conversation about sex and consent. When was the last time? I guarantee you that for the vast majority of people, it is never. Never. Yeah. yeah. Because they don't want to have that conversation because most men are not taught how to engage sexually with women in a way that is healthy. They are taught to find context, create context where consent is more difficult for the female to relinquish. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's, add in. that's why you like, one add in. what? Right. Add in the fear of rejection into all of that as well. Exactly. You don't talk about it. You don't get rejected. That's right. You don't get rejected. It's called the, uh, it's called, it's like this incremental consent where you're the consent of touch. It's called where you start touching different parts of the body. And either the person being touched moves the hand away or they don't. Mm -hmm. All right. That's how they know to progressively continue or not. And this is part of the, the MO of, of young men and young women, instead of it being a conversation they have beforehand. And, there are, and I, what I love are people who say, oh, man, what are you trying to do? Kill the vibe. That one, Nobody's going to be able to have that. Are you out of your mind? Wow. The mo one of the most arousing things you can do as a human being is talk to another person that you might have sex with about sex. Right. It's very arousing and it, it, it leads to all different pathways. So this is a very immature childish thought to believe that talking about sex somehow ruins it. Only if you're doing it badly, my friend, only if you're intending to cause harm. So the line is consent always. It is not complicated. And the only people who want to make it complicated are people doing dirt. So that's mm -hmm. my, that's my two cents. <laughs> Your two cents. My two, all two of them. All two of them. <laughs> all two of them. So, um, <laughs> This is the, just in case anybody cares, this is actually, there's a, this is the, if you want to check uh, Dick Blue Sky, just look him up. You can find out. I'm not kidding about this stuff. It's actually out there. Law enforcement did zero investigation beyond just arresting those two people. They did not investigate. Uh, they only dealt with the victims who came forward. They didn't investigate the other victims who were mentioned in the book. They left them out, which means those victims did not get mental health assistance. They didn't get uh, victim aid. They didn't get their issues taken care of. Several of them went on to be you know, have really bad drinking and drug problems and, uh, you know, became uh, and re-entered the um, temporary companionship business as adults because this was something that messed him up forever, you know. So this is not dealing with this at the time was the first problem with the victim. The next thing is they refused to go back out to the crime scene because they didn't want to find more evidence that might implicate people in the local community. And that's the same reason why they didn't investigate who was being sold tapes to. They didn't want to know who was coming to the island and they didn't want to know who the tapes were being sold to, even though this would have been a very easy task force to set up with the U.S. Postal Service to figure it out. They were not interested. 
but, but great questions. Um, let me just say something else. The other issue that we uh, that we share on our border, the U.S. Canadian border, is the issue of man camps. Man camps are set up around uh, oil, gas and oil pipelines, where men come from all over the country, but both countries, to work. But they're on these camps out in the middle of nowhere. It happens in Alaska, happens in Canada, happens in the northern United States and along the border with Canada. These man camps are essentially places where uh, that are on Native American reservations. The Native American females that are there, very easy to traffic because they are vulnerable. This is one of the most important issues. The vulnerability is female, impoverished, ignorant, uh, sexually ignorant, maybe less than educated, but they, maybe they have an abusive environment in their own home that they're trying to get away from. And so this is their chance. This is the only opportunity they have to make some money. And then they wind up getting trafficked uh, routinely in a context where they're being exploited. It can start out like maybe they want to do it, but then they realize it's not what they don't get any money for it or they're getting hurt and they want out and then they can't. And these man camps are set up specifically for that. So if you're dating someone or married to someone who's in one of these man camps, this is very unlikely that they are not using the services of a, pro of a prostitute who does not want to be there. Very unlikely. Same in Alaska. Very, very common. All right. So it's a very big problem. Have you guys seen much of that in Canada with that with that issue or no? I had no idea about that. <laughs> it's in all the literature on uh, on um, sex trafficking is about essentially wherever men gather, this is where you have to send the prostitutes. Let me give you another example. There's a very good article, a very good law review article about this about 10 years ago that there in the Middle East, for example, there's very little sex trafficking because that kind of shit is tightly controlled by the local government. Very little legal, uh, very little sex trafficking on the in the open way. But whenever a military base gets set up and there's no sex trafficking there in that area, the U.S. military subsidizes it, subsidizes the development of brothels through private contractors so that their men have a place to go to have sex. That's why outside of military bases, there's strip clubs and brothels always, right. always subsidized indirectly by the U.S. government through their contractors. This is not something new. This is not new information to anybody in the military. What I do not like are law enforcement officers and military members who lie about this because we all know it's true. Stop lying about it. You did. Now, let me just say that you're all one of the good guys. I didn't use one. No, but you knew guys that were. And did you say right. anything? No, you didn't say anything. So you're not a good guy. You're just another bad you're guy. Part of the problem. Yeah, you're part of the problem, my friend. Yeah. If you're not speaking out about it. And that's why I put the shit in the books because I, I can't stomach the notion that I would be part of this problem. All right. So um, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to talk about. The, the amount of money here is, is, the, is the important part. They will, people who are using, uh, who are engaging in um, the sex trafficking of victims, the, over the life of a person, they can make between $200,000 and $300,000 before they be, before they age out. And aging out can include getting too old or getting too sick. They get riddled with disease and they are not able to perform. And you think, oh my God, it's something like herpes or AIDS. Yes, oh, those are bad. Those are bad. But for, let me tell you about a case I worked. There's a case Aurelio and I worked back in 20, 2020, early days of the pandemic in the summer. It involved a young lady who was from Oaxaca and she was um, an indigenous. She was native. And an Italian guy came over, very wealthy Italian guy. And he basically, quote unquote, married her. In, from, went to her village particularly to find a indigenous female who was poor and who was very ignorant. 
and oh, now they're in love and now he's courting her. Well, fast forward two years and he is selling her online to his Italian, through his Italian tourism business where he brings over other Italians and they have sex with, uh, with women. Over the years, they, they had a child. She was, she was forced to have several abortions, which is its, its own little special crime. But then um, uh, she, was also, she actually secretly hid her pregnancy for a while and then had a child with the guy. And he wound up, uh, she wound up getting so sick from HPV. So it was so bad that she was bleeding. She was in pain. So guess what he did? He kicked her out, kicked her out of the, ho of the home they'd shared for almost 20 years when she got that sick and she couldn't perform her duties as a, uh, being videotaped and recorded and engaging in sex acts with the tourists that he would bring over. Well, um, she basically tried to go back with her lawyers to, with lawyers to get her things. And they, the lawyers were attacked and he filed a report saying the law, he didn't know this woman. She was crazy. Uh, that the lawyers tried to attack him. They had it all on video and they arrested the lawyers and they arrested her. And when Aurelio and I got involved, the, the court was going to put all those guys in jail for years because this wealthy Italian businessman was uh, behind it all. And so Aurelio and I, they tried to make it so Aurelio and I wouldn't testify, but we, uh, since 1950, yeah, there we go. Thanks Aurelio. We appreciate that. Uh, we actually traveled there, Aurelio and I, and we sat and waited to testify in the mountains above Mazunte in Oaxaca at this very small ramshackle courthouse because they wouldn't do Zoom. They were just like, oh, no, no, you have to be in person. So we went there during the pandemic and followed our protocols because it was too important. Long story short, because of the attorney involved and because our report was read on the record, our findings in this case were read on the record, we demonstrated she was trafficked, that she was actually married to him. This was her house. They had a son together. Uh, she had nothing and he kicked her out into the streets with nothing it, during a time during the pandemic with a severe illness. Uh, the court actually sided with us and reversed everything. They dismissed all the charges against her and her attorneys and they charged the guy. His name was actually another Sergio. His name was Sergio. They charged him with um, with sex trafficking. They charged him with the domestic violence and they charged him. I, I don't know if they charged him with a false report, but I think they did. Wound up basically kicked him and his new girlfriend girlfriend out of the house. And she was allowed to move back in and now she has a place to live and she's doing better. But her illness wasn't just, it wasn't just the traditional idea that we have. What I would like to do is see the breaking down of stereotypes. Why, the reason why this is important is because it's an indigenous woman and white people like you and I are programmed to think, well, that's just the way it is because they're indigenous. So we don't have a social or legal responsibility here. That is the most hurtful, horrible thing because I can feel my... Talk to me about that, because I, I want I've been grappling with this a lot lately. My my cultural programming of being white and being privileged and being sort of resisting seeing things directly for what they are. Do you ever feel that? Because I feel it like constantly. Tell me your experience with that. I'd love to hear it. Do I personally feel like that? Yeah, like like you can't there are certain subjects you feel like you have to wave when you're I know that you're stronger than most people, but in the past I have had this pull. Now I now I just when I recognize it, I just push through it. But I can tell there are things that I have been taught, I've been programmed to believe and think about minorities, about people of color, about people who are indigenous, that there are certain things we don't look directly at because of our responsibility. And if we don't look directly at it, we're not responsible for it. Then we can just go about our merry lives and not have to do anything. Tell me what you tell me. You're, you, you must have had experience with that at some point because, man, I, I don't want to be the only one. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one, but I don't feel like I, I think that that, yes, I've experienced it and I've seen it and I am reflecting on like 
growing up and the individuals and school and history and all of those sorts of things are all coming back right now. I'm downloading mm -hmm. that information. <laughs> but have I ever felt that way? No, because I've always pushed. <coughs> I've always questioned. If I see something, I, I'm like, that's not right. I don't think it's right for these reasons. And I will be, I'm always the one asking questions and trying to, not that I can change the world, but I'm trying to make positive changes or inform people or educate people. Maybe it's not my place. I don't know, but yeah. I can't agree. In this conversation, I'd have to say you're, you're it. <laughs> it's okay. I've, I've been it. So there, there's my two cents. Well, let me just tell you that all two of them. Thank you. <laughs> I would just say that for me, I experience it on a daily basis because I'm constantly confronting. The more I learn about the programming that I was given when I was a kid about how to see the world and how to see other people mm -hmm. in it, in my view of it, just the language that we use, like the word uh, Aurelio always dings me for using the word exotic because what he means is exotic to what? Exotic mm -hmm. to a white person. There's no such thing as exotic. That's a word white people made up to sort of True. to overly sexualize foreign experience as though foreigners are different and somehow they feel pain differently. They, their culture, they don't, they don't value life the same way you and I do. Yeah, they do. They just value it in their way. You know, it's just That's a very, right. the way we look at things, the way we talk about people, indigenous people in particular. And so this is a problem that exists yes, yes. right in front of us that we refuse to look at even when we're seeing it. Um, the Dick right. case is a great example of that because that involved kids and the police didn't want to look at it because their bosses and the people who control the money in the community would come on, down on them like a hammer if they did a competent investigation into the issues. Um, let's see, well, there was another, oh, I worked a case recently. Don Howard, I am full Native American, but I feel like we're not gonna, we're not gonna that, Don, you are absolutely right. That is absolutely true. It is, uh, white guys like me are programmed not to see people like you. And I apologize for that. That is, I wish it were not the case. I, w I wish we were able to, to learn our true history and teach our true history without it being controversial. But the problem is, too many people like me benefit from you not being seen, from you not being heard, and from you not having a voice or agency. So that's that's a problem we have to solve. We have to create space and allow that conversation. So if you have anything is, more, more you want to add, Don, you let us know. We'll put it right up on the screen, okay? And what I was going to say to that is, in my experience, the people that I, my family or friends, yes, it exists. And I see it all the time. I hear the language that they speak. And I see it. I am not blind to it, but I also am the one to push back a little bit and, and, you know, ask questions and say, well, why would you say that? And this is, this is out of pure ignorance. And I, I am that one that challenged people all the time. Right. But these conversations can't be had because no one's willing to have them. Generationally, everyone's just like, don't talk about that. Like, this yeah. is not my problem. That's their problem or that generation's problem or the man's problem. No, men get, men get when you talk about sex trafficking, men get really quiet. And they women do. because they, they get know they're very angry. angry. Women yes. get angry, and men. Are, it's the, the Karens. The Karens rise. Um, I had a, <laughs> a case recently. Did you help me with this case? I can't remember if you did. There was the, the Terry Bean case. Mm -hmm. All right, there was a case I was working on in Oregon involving a um, that all the charges were just dismissed between uh, for two, two two defendants, and it involved a couple. Uh, that were, uh, one was in his 60s, a homosexual advocate who had a boyfriend who was in his 20s, Filipino, and they like to have sex with, uh, uh, they like to have three ways, essentially. They would go on Grinder and they'd hire somebody and they'd come over and they'd have sex, right? Well, the victim in this case, or the, per the person who made the complaint, not the victim, uh, 
the law enforcement alleged that he was being trafficked on Grinder, but they only went after Terry Bean because they wanted to make a political statement because the law enforcement community in uh, Oregon is extremely homophobic. They're very white and they're very homophobic. It's very bad in that way. They did not go after the other 40 men that this kid had been seeing on the Grinder app. He was uh, 16 or 17 at the time, so he was a minor. Uh, he was encouraged to use that app, I believe, by his father, who had a thing for transsexuals. And I don't know who was making that money, but I don't think the kid was. So there was no investigation into these, the circumstances of his trafficking, even though there was intense political desire to politically harm um, the, the activist lawyer. And, I, and I, he was not doing a good thing. So I understand the investigation into him. But what I don't understand is the failure to, the negligent failure to investigate all the other guys that this kid had been having sex with because they're all equally culpable of the same crime if there was a crime there. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? There's like a, it's the failure of law enforcement to follow up. They go after the ones they like. They go after the ones they want to go after and everybody else mm -hmm. they kind of ignore and they, they selectively enforce the criminal activity against other people. You know, I think we see that across many aspects of law enforcement as well. They just need someone or they want someone and they put them in that role. Right. right. But then they but they should they demonstrate their misunderstanding of the crime by not rolling up what we do call rolling up the chain, which is investigating the full extent of the crimes perpetrated against the person that they're talking about, especially when it involves other people, because they want to they want a clear path to one particular suspect while ignoring everybody else doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying everybody else doing the same thing is right. I'm saying if there's something being done wrong, they're all doing it wrong and they all need to be arrested. Put, put cuffs right. on all of them, bring them all in. You could shut it down. But that's, this is my problem. My overall thesis here is that my concern is law enforcement is, is selectively in, uh, using the laws of sex trafficking for their own benefit to manipulate, control, coerce, and exploit victims of sex trafficking, not to help them. Because if mm -hmm. they were doing that, they'd be going after real money. They'd be going after, go after all the customers, go after all the traffickers. Right. Whoever they may be. And all the cops who are protecting them. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward, but we don't do it. And the fact that we don't do it is the problem. It tells us a lot about our culture and our society. And that, that's the disappointing part. Let me just see if there was anything else I wanted to mention. Like I said, it's a, the problem is the money and the power that's associated with it. That's the problem. So it's not, it's not true to say that we don't know that people are being trafficked. We do. We know where they're being trafficked. We know who's being trafficked. We know how. We know, the, we know the customers and we know the providers, but law enforcement does not go after them. They will herd them into a spot and let it continue because it benefits them. It benefits them either because they're protecting a certain group of the population, they're protecting themselves or they're protecting their friends and colleagues, many of whom went on a straight path from military into law enforcement and have acclimated to the notion that uh, men should be allowed to have sex with whoever they want if they pay them. And that includes women who do not want to have sex with them and children who do not want to have sex with them. Um, this is a very, very big problem. And it is, and I would, I would caution us to say we need to be educated enough. And I appreciate you bringing it up before so that we can have mature conversations about human sexuality in a consensual context and sexual exploitation. They are not the same thing. And when we put them in the same boat together, that's the religious right loves to do that. Religious people love to do that because it allows them to not have to deal with the issue or to paint everything with a very broad brush and not embrace the complexity or their the complicity of their church and their church members in this activity. Because I guarantee you, 
they are all going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> going to the Super Bowl. There's going to be a lot of upset men. They're all about talking about. This Super Bowl. You're going to tell me that a white man is going to be a fragile little white man snowflake is going to be upset with what I what I said. Concerned Karens and upset husbands. Concerned Karens and <laughs> complicit Karens and, right. and sex offenders will be upset with what I've said. Yeah. Especially those who are who are interested in exploiting the Super Bowl for sexual purposes because that's what they want to travel and go do. Women, if your men are going on fishing trips to Alaska, they're engaged in sex trafficking very likely. I would say about 80, 70 to 80% of the time in that zone. If they're going, if they're traveling for the Super Bowl and they do not want you to go with you, there's a very big reason for that. They're going with a group of men and they're going to go party. And if you are a woman, if you're a person who thinks that this is acceptable behavior from your partner, then you are part of the problem. <laughs> I don't know right. how to say it. And that's why you hate these girls, by the way. The burning hatred in your heart for women in sex trafficking or women who in sex work in general comes from your complicity with that trade, with the exploitative side of that trade. There are, there are not, there's not one side of it. There's multiple sides. So uh, I want you to, I want to give you the final word on this because I think it's too, I think it's too important of an issue to ignore. Final word on what? Don't you want to, don't you, isn't there some final thought you'd like to impart some final experience? Or final no, experience? I, I'm processing what you just said because that was such a good point. And mm. for once I'll give you a compliment. Tell me. That was, was a very good, good point that you just made that the burning the hatred because i see the anger and you, you just bring up even a strip club you bring that up and you just see the tail like just life drains from women's faces and they're so upset with this topic but i never yeah. thought of it from that from that side that they're complicit that they're I, I, yeah they're angry they're angry is with themselves that's right yeah they're angry with themselves for doing nothing for allowing this so instead of getting angry with their spouse who they are economically bound to and they're enjoying the economic privileges of being with a spouse, they are going to blame the females who are involved, whether it's somebody cheating on them or whether it's somebody who's being trafficked or, and they'll make excuses for them. Like, well, she looks old enough. Oh. Instead, of, instead of saying, that's not the question. The question is, why is your husband seeing all these people on this, you know, dating app? All Do you know how many times I've heard that line yeah. in casework or interviews? Well, she looks old enough. Me too. It's irrelevant. Do we, I, I have a 12 year old mm -hmm. that does her makeup sometimes and, you know, she has fun with it, but she does not look 12. I would give her 16, 17, 25, at, that 25 sometimes. Yes. So it's she not looks old that. enough. That's not, that's not a thing anymore because 12 year olds can look old. Enough. Well, that's Stop been the case it. in Latin America for years. First of all, I want to make that very clear. True. Second thing is that, the reason why th this logic that somehow if they look old enough, that makes it okay. No, my friend, what it means is you're accustomed to having sex with people that you don't talk to about it beforehand. You're accustomed right. to creating sexual scenarios and entering sexual scenarios like a big baby incapable of having an adult conversation about sex with an adult female. Because if you have an adult conversation about sex with an adult female, you'll establish whether or not they're old enough. You'll establish whether or not one, they're, physically old enough and two emotionally old enough and if you do that the sex that you will have will be better because it will be mutually agreed upon and consensual and you'll get to do the things you enjoy and avoid relationships with people that don't enjoy stuff but the possibility of rejection the fragility of the male is so intense that they would rather sort of grope their way through the dark 
figuratively and metaphorically than actually have a real conversation with a real life person. And that's the problem. And if you want to get angry about that, that's fine. But that just means your mama didn't sit you down and have the talk or she tried to and you didn't listen. Didn't listen. Or both. <laughs> and that is probably the final word. I'll just say this. We, this is a very big problem. It's right in front of us all the time. Law enforcement knows where it's going on. Law enforcement officers involved in their protection. They herd people into the community into certain areas so that they can manage the exploitation of these vulnerable groups. And I'll, let me give you an example. I worked a serial killer case involving five different victims. Alan Todd Reed, he liked underage female prostitute victims in, the, in Oregon, in Portland. He would, um, and guess where he would select them from? The steps of the Multnomah County Library in downtown Portland, because that's where the female teenage prostitutes hung out and everybody knows it. And the story behind that is her name was Alex. One of the victims was Alex Eisen. She was with her mother, who was a prostitute and a meth addict. And the mother had a new boyfriend and the boyfriend started hitting on the daughter. So you know what the mother did? The mother sat the daughter down and said, you got to move out because in two years, you're going to probably move out anyway. You know, you're 13, 14 in two years, you're going to move out anyway. And I'm not going to have anybody. And this guy's taking care of me. So you need to move out because eventually he's going to want to have sex with you and you're going to do it. I just know it. She kicked her out. Within two years, the daughter had been raped and murdered by Alan Todd Reed because the mother chose the boyfriend over the child. And that is another problem that I keep seeing happen. I'm not blaming the mom particularly. I'm just saying we want to pretend we're angry at ourselves for the choices, the selfish choices we make and the harm it causes our children. One of the things we're doing that's harmful to our children is not acknowledging this problem, not studying this problem, not confronting this problem, not holding law enforcement accountable for dealing with this problem, which is their job. Now, there's another aspect to it as well, which is the social, the public health issue. That absolutely has to be dealt with. It's got to be a two-pronged approach. The law enforcement response to, oh, a big one. In, uh, in Las Vegas, they just did a big sting. They arrested all the female underage prostitutes. That's who they went after because it was easy. Why they do that in Las Vegas? So that the officers can use those charges to coerce and control sexually these kids. That is what they do. If they were serious about the problem of prostitution, they would go after the pimps and the johns. Right. They don't like doing that because those guys usually have resources. Right. So that's the we have to acknowledge the problem that law enforcement's part of this problem, it's complicity. And then we have to acknowledge our own sort of social ineptitude at dealing with the with the issue of sex and rape. Because we just cannot have mature conversations with each other about these anymore. We're just not educated. Anything you want to add before we go? Yes, sir. <laughs> You're gonna let me be right just this one time. Are you feeling I so- even gave you a compliment once? I know. I, I don't like it. I don't like it. Don't do that again. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. I that feel like- is e- done. Done. So <laughs> done. done. That is easy. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me this week. This has been The Hard Truth. If you're interested in listening to these or other related podcasts, we have them on Spotify and everywhere else that you can find podcasts. Uh, This has been Dr. Brent Turvey and Melanie Inglis from Canada. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.
The Hard Truth is an original podcast by the Forensic Criminology Institute, produced by Diana Garcia. Edition Sara Garcia and Alan Soria. Additional voices Paul Solino and Sophie Garcia. If you're interested in the Institute activities, please visit the website forensic-institute.com or email us to contact at forensic-institute.com.